Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Now, a couple of years ago, uh, the Melbourne artist Mirka Mora died in 2018. Uh, she was the first female artist to receive a Victorian state memorial, a sign of just how significant she was as not just an artist, but as a cultural icon to this city. Now at the Jewish Museum of Australia, a new exhibition, Mirka, uh, will be showing until the 19th of December, celebrating her life, her talent, uh, uh, and such a vivacious life that it's hard to do justice but we'll try her son William Mora who runs William Mora Galleries joins us on the line William a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us uh, thanks for having me on Richard and uh, thank you for that introduction uh, it, it was quite humbling for the family to be offered a uh, state funeral it's uh, such a big deal and of course they asked us where we'd like to hold it and we said well Mirka sort of and killed her right. She would have loved the Palais de Danse. So we, that's where we held it, and she she packed it. Although, uh, although it was a, a sad occasion, but also a wonderful celebration of Mocha's life, which is a nice segue into the exhibition at the Jewish Museum. The museum uh, exhibition was due to open last year, but uh, a little thing called a global pandemic got in the way. Has delaying the exhibition enabled it to be kind of further developed and finessed in any way? You've really put your finger on it, Richard, absolutely. In fact, we, we, we found more early, or the curators found more early material to include in the show, and we were able to refine the whole vision for the exhibition, having that extra, what was it, about eight or nine months, in fact. So uh, that was one positive that's come, come out of uh, the COVID lockdown we experienced last year. There's certainly a sense of optimism in the air today in, uh, in Richmond, uh, and I'm sure that the people are queuing up to see Merkel's show as, as we speak. For you as uh, some... I mean, we're talking about your, your mother here, but we're also mm. talking to you as a gallerist. Is it difficult for you to separate kind of those two identities, to talk about your mother and her art, uh, in any kind of way dispassionately or is kind of uh, is that just not possible to do that's a very good question Richard but look I've grown up seeing her art sort of in my subconscious as well as my conscious but I often tell this story when Merka was once asked by a young journalist what the secret of uh, being a successful artist is and Merka said oh make sure very early on in your career you give birth to your own art dealer <laughs> so that that's me but, um, I mean, yeah, as I say, uh, you know, people say, what's your favourite painting? And I say, look, it's really hard. There's, there's, uh, there's so many different aspects to Merker's work that it's impossible to really pick out one favourite. I mean, one has to remember that she painted for 70 years, which is an incredible amount of time to be making art. So there's such a diversity to her art. And she also loved to explore a multitude of different media. So she's done everything from painting, drawing, pastel, charcoal, uh, embroidery, sculpture, hard sculpture, soft sculpture, etc., etc. 
So it's a phenomenal legacy that she's left us. And, of course, um, there's a taste of that in this, what I call a gigantic show in a small museum, uh, which is, which is uh, as, as you pointed out at the beginning, it's actually going to be on for nine months, which is quite exceptional for a museum show. Most museum shows are only on for about three months. So even if we have one or two more lockdowns, Richard, you'll still be able to get to see this show. Now, it's not only an exceptional duration for an exhibition, but it's a celebration of an exceptional talent because one of the things that I uh, think it's so important to remember about Mooka mm. is that she wasn't just an artist. She was a facilitator of cultural conversation, for example, a, a kind of grand dame of uh, Bohemia in Melbourne, for example, when she uh, arrived here initially, kind of, uh, uh, kind of what? So, George's... 1951 they arrived, yes. and uh, apparently then you couldn't even get real coffee. My father said they used to have a thing called chicory with chicory essence, which you added hot water to. Which just sounds um, disgusting. So uh... Absolutely disgusting. But look, it's, it's interesting you bring up that point because at that time, most of the Jewish immigration into Australia, I think uh, recently, it was something like 45% were involved in the rag trade. And so for my parents to get involved in, in first the hospitality and then and, and then the arts uh, made them stand out quite, you know, they were quite an exception to the normal sort of immigrants, as it were. And um, their impact initially, obviously, was, was in, 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 in the hospitality industry. In fact, in the exhibition, there's wonderful footage from 1956 with a neon sign of the Merca Cafe. And you've got, of course, John Percival sitting in the window of the Merca Cafe. So very quickly... Uh, after getting involved with hospitality, they fell into the, the what was the contemporary art scene then, which really centred around John and Sunday Reed, uh, who lived out at Heidi. And that's, of course, now a museum too, who's imported Merca over the years, as well as, as the current exhibition that's on at the Jewish Museum. But they very quickly fell into that group of what we now call the moderns, you know, the most revered artists from that period, uh, uh, Hester, Blackman, Tucker, Nolan, Percival, etc., so, uh, I mean, one thing people underestimated about Mocha because of her sort of joie de vivre and, and, and flamboyant nature was that she was incredi- incredibly well-read. She was very, she sort of, well, had her Holocaust experience at the age of 13, so her formal education was taken away from her. So she, uh, when she arrived in Australia, she just soaked up every book she could find, and in fact her book collection was quite phenomenal. So, uh, you know, woe betide the person who underestimated Merkel's knowledge of literature or Greek mythology or Jungian psychology or symbolism, etc., etc. She was the complete, uh, complete mystery to a lot of people, but, but always in good faith. Now, the fact that she had no formal training in fine arts, because, as you say, uh, kind of having to leave school aged 13 during the, the Second World War, uh, nonetheless, the, the, the kind of breadth of her artistic practice, from painting to soft sculpture, from uh, murals to dolls and clothing and so much more, kind of, she seemed to have this hunger for life that was expressed across a range of, of media and art forms. And I understand she was also an enthusiastic teacher and mentor as well. Absolutely. In fact, she got the Zellman Cowan Medal from the um, Adult Education, where she worked for 27 years. 
So, um, I mean, she loved to teach. She loved to encourage people. She was very big on the idea that, you know, everybody had a potential in there. You just had to have the confidence to, to, to try and dig it out and, and, and make it work for you. So, you know, we're constantly told lovely stories by people who came across Merca who said, your mother changed my life. She made me believe in myself. She made me believe I had potential. All I had to do was work very, very hard, as Merca would say. In fact, that's one of the big things she was big on was always working when she was uh, when she was able to. Now, in terms of the exhibition design for Merca, the exhibition at the Jewish Museum of Australia, mm. how does the exhibition design, for example, reflect uh, Merca's life and work? Because exhibition design is a subtle but important part of the presentation of any artist's work, and I'm wondering. I think, yeah. I was just going to say, how to, to do justice to Merca in terms of exhibition design, you don't want to overwhelm the work in any way, but you want to acknowledge that so many different aspects of her life as well. Absolutely. Well, this show is actually a wonderful combination of not only her art, but also a lot of her private papers and writings. And the thing that really stands out for me, in fact, that brought me to tears, was they've created a soundscape of Merca's voice in each of the separate rooms. And that really, really rocks it. She speaks so well with her sort of French accent, which she never lost after 70 years of living in Australia. So you hear her voice as well as seeing the objects that she lived with, as well as uh, reading from her diaries as, as well as seeing her art. So the whole package really in, in, in one go it kind of tells you the, the life story of Merca as well as showing you the, you know, the finest aspects of her art. I mean there's some really major major works in there that, uh, that haven't been seen before. Some very early charcoals. There's one charcoal in there called Adam and Eve that's uh, to, to point two metres square, which is a, a massive size for a charcoal. So they've cre created this, yeah, this this wonderful sort of uh, combination of, you know, brushes and paints and, 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 and the art as well, as well as her books, as well as uh, things like, uh, as well as a, a doll collection, which was learned from Heidi and, and so on. So there's, it's a very rich exhibition visually, as well as being very personal in terms of getting an inkling into what Merca loved to surround herself with in the, terms of, of object and objects and books and so on. The sheer fact that that soundscape accompanying the work, that, that visitors will hear uh, Merca's voice, um, and I sh should acknowledge Madeline Flynn and Tim Humphrey who've created that soundscape. It's, so it's as if, in some ways, Merca never left. Her presence will be kind of not just permeate, permeating the exhibition, but accompanying people through it. Uh, it, it's, it feels like a lovely way to celebrate somebody whose life was so large and had such a, a significant cultural impact on her adopted city. Well, absolutely. I mean, obviously, Richard, I'm totally biased, but um, I was also, you know, emotionally really rocked hearing hearing her voice after, you know, she passed me uh, coming up for three years in, in August this year. So to hear her voice just totally brought her back to life while you're looking at her artworks and, and the objects that she surrounded herself with. So my first walk through with my wife through the exhibition left me, to be honest, speechless. It was 
it brought her back to life, as you say. It, it was an amazing experience. I can only imagine what other people will, will get from viewing the exhibition. The exhibition Merca is showing at the Jewish Museum of Australia until the 19th of December. Uh, the museum located at 26 Alma Road in St Kilda. And more info at jewishmuseum.com.au. And speaking to William Mora, the gallerist uh, and son of Merca, the artist whose uh, life and legacy and body of work the exhibition is celebrating. In terms of that body of work, William, can uh, can one exhibition ever do justice to Merca? Well, um, I don't think so because she left such, uh, as we talked about earlier, she has left such a legacy of her artwork uh, and she used to hide her artwork. I mean, we, we keep finding, or we, we did, kept on finding things hidden in furniture. I mean, in her studio apartment, she had furniture and some of furniture and some of It's been this amazing process of discovery. And, um, you know, I, I sort of jokingly say, but it's probably true that my grandchildren will probably still be dealing with Merca's beautiful art. It's a wonderful legacy to have. And I look forward to visiting the exhibition myself. William Moore, thank you so much for joining us here on Triple R. Thank you, Richard. And uh, the the exhibition, as I said, on at the Jewish Museum of Australia uh, until the 19th of December. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Now, earlier in the program, I mentioned that uh, a festival that is taking place, a celebration of uh, Southeast Asian Australian art and culture. And one of the challenges on this program, I'm conscious of the fact that sometimes when I talk about work, it's often work that is focused on the CBD and the inner city. But in this case, there's an opportunity to see work not only at uh, Dance House in Carlton and Abbotsford Convent in, surprisingly, Abbotsford, but also at the Drum Theatre out in Dandenong and Bunjil Place as well. Joining us to talk about uh, a new festival, uh, Sangam 2021, running across four weekends, Dr uh, Priya Srinivasan, welcome to Triple R. Hi Richard, thank you so much for having me. So where did the the concept of this, uh, are we calling it a festival? Is it officially a festival or are we festivaled out? <laughs> well, I don't know. I reckon coming out of lockdown, I think we're all festivaled in, especially for live festivals. Um, It seems like we need it more than ever, and audiences are really demanding diverse programming like what we're offering. So, yes, I think we do call it a festival for this moment because we do need to celebrate, given everything that's been going on in Melbourne, don't you think? I absolutely agree. It's interesting that uh, a year and a half ago it felt like festivals, well, well, almost two years ago now, there were so many festivals that it was overwhelming, but I'm certainly more than willing to to embrace this one. representing over a hundred artists across four venues over four weekends and covering a range of art forms as well music dance comedy experimental performance spoken word and so much more it sounds like kind of curating and selecting this would have been a bit of a challenge um actually you know it was not a challenge in terms of curation it was because there was so much need in the in the art sector for this kind of bringing together around South Asian art. Um, as you know, South Asians are the largest migrant population in Australia right now, and especially in Victoria. But yet we don't really see 
representations of ourselves self-curated or self-represented in the media or in public platforms or even in mainstream festival spaces. So that was why Sangam was born, to address that inequity in a way. And really, the bringing of all of these artists together was not that difficult, Um in the sense that, you know, I've had festival curators say to me, oh, where are the South Asian artists? How can we program them? So this is really a response to that, to say, well, there's thousands of us, and here's just a small sample of the range of arts that we do. I'm reminded of a social media campaign that ran a, a couple of years ago in response similar to uh, to directors and casting agents going, oh, kind of, there's just not that many of them. We don't know where to find them. Uh, kind of, you just have to look. So the fact that this festival is clearly is flying the flag and saying if you, you say you can't find artists from South Asian, Australian backgrounds, you're... Clearly, they're just not trying hard enough. Yes, exactly, Richard. And that was that campaign was partly produced by my friend um, Sonia Suarez, who who actually started that question, saying, "Really, there are so many of us." So it's it's really in in that vein to just say you can't really ignore this sector and the richness of the arts that are coming from all of these young um, emerging artists. We also have mid-career artists in the in the program. We have a range of experiences, but really talented at all kinds of levels. And I think people are going to be really happy and surprised by what they're going to see at every venue. Each venue has a different kind of programming built into it to deal with the local population that might frequent those spaces. Now, I mentioned, uh, mistakenly, I said it was a new festival. This is the second Sangam, is that right? Yes, correct. That's right. The first Sangam was back in 2019. And um, then we have continued to develop with the support of Creative Victoria and MAV, Multicultural Arts Victoria, who have been our um, partners in the process to really affect this change. But we're really grateful that we were able to work through COVID last year primarily on the digital platform and we're able to bring all our artists together virtually. Um, don't ask me how, but we did it. Um, it was a great challenge and I'm really pleased that, you know, despite this last little uh, hiccup, of the five-day lockdown, um, we're pleased that it's all going ahead and we're able to actually offer live art for audiences that really want it. Now, I certainly, just before the last lockdown, I had uh, three shows booked uh, over that weekend that we that uh, where, where things shut down again. And the sense of loss that I felt reminded me just how important live performance is to me, certainly, and to so many other people. So to have the opportunity to go and see dance again, to, to hear comedy, to to, to see spoken word and and not to see it filtered through a screen on a phone or uh, through Zoom on a on a desktop computer that will be wonderful. Talk to us about some of the highlights in the program that people can see. Yeah, so um, Saturday, this coming Saturday at the convent, we have a really powerful range of emerging voices and also established voices of, as you said. Um, short spoken word, experimental music, dance and um, visual practice on display. Unfortunately, the, the ticket, the, the venue is sold out. We, we sold out about two weeks ago, which just goes to show you the real need that there is. And so we're really pleased that the convent tickets are all done for the Dada Desi program, which is an eclectic mix of the experimental cutting edge South Asian arts that are um, coming into Melbourne. 
Um, but then the next week, February 27th, which is at the Drum Theatre in um, Dandenong, we actually are taking over literally three spaces. One is the Drum Theatre, the other is Harmony Square, and the other is the Walker Street Gallery parking lot. It's a walking tour for audiences um, where the audience will kind of choose their own adventure of what they go and see, and they'll be able to see how a South Asian takeover is happening of the Dandenong area. Um, primarily classical arts done in experimental ways, which is going to be really unique and interesting. And fingers crossed the weather holds up that we can actually um, really have an exciting evening of events. And, of course, at all of our venues we have um, exceptional, authentic food and uh, coffee and tea, chai, are available, so that's also part of what the experience is. You really get a sense of what people have. We also have a beautiful program at Bunjil Place in the main theatre, um, scheduled for March 6th. There's going to be uh, three, it's a triple bill, with a choir that is uh, led by Uttara Vijay, one of the other artistic directors of Sangam, and a uh, quartet of an alternate kind, led by Hari Sivanesan, who's also another artistic director of the festival. It's going to be really unique. Two uh, musical performances followed by a um, really unique adapted work called The Flowering Tree, which is a multi-art form practice. I don't think people would have uh, would expect to see something like that. Uh, I don't think it's been done. And this is a project that Hari and myself uh, worked with these artists from the Southeast region uh, since June last year, actually May, to work on this primarily online and then, of course, in intensives in December and January, which is a screen adaptation of a, a story of a girl, a Kannada folktale from South India, adapted to look at the environment, nature and violence against women. Now, there's then, more, just to jump in yeah, there for sorry. a moment, there's, yeah. uh, there is more yeah. work coming up at Dance House, which I wanted to talk about in just a sec. But to revisit the program out uh, at the Drum Theatre in Dandenong, you mentioned this kind of combination of classical and contemporary art forms. How do they... Tell us about the way they... Kind of the friction they create when something like a a classical form of dance or classical form of music, for example, rubs up against contemporary practice. Yeah, so this is part of what the festival is really on about. That's its core, Richard, you've got to it, which is that we want to talk about the classical and contemporary on a continuum, on a horizontal, and not really thinking about it as the contemporary is so separate from the classical. As you might know, many of us who come from South Asian countries have been colonised, and therefore our arts have also been a product of that colonization and where we sought to create ourselves as traditional artists who have had 3,000-year-old traditions handed down to us. In fact, these are actual contemporary forms that have been reconstructed. And similarly, contemporary dance as we know it, and this is part of a book that I've written called Sweating Saris, Indian Dance as Transnational Labor, looks at how contemporary dance is actually influenced by South Asian artists who visited the US, Australia, and Europe in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and how that has transformed what we think of as the classical or the traditional, but actually they are just two sides of the same coin. And therefore, how do we actually rethink the contemporary is what this festival is on about, is to give opportunities to a reimagining of the aesthetic of the contemporary 
that is held by sort of mainstream um, presenters and festival organisers and um, producers right now is to really challenge that. Coming up then also at Dance House, that exploration of classical and contemporary uh, continues with uh, a series of programs at Dance House in Carlton on Thursday the 11th of March and Friday the 12th of March. And the 13th Saturday as well. We've got three evenings planned and we're really excited. We've got two triple bills, short works, by some of the most incredible artists you can imagine coming from Nam in Melbourne and also from, uh, we've got two artists from Belgium and the other one from the US. They left Australia because of the lack of opportunities in a way. And so it's really wonderful to be able to host them virtually. I mean, in the sense that they've created a dance on film, which is going to be right alongside the live artworks featured at Dance House, and you should not miss this. Really, people, um, this is going to be such an incredible opportunity to see uh, really well-known names in Melbourne, such as Raina Peterson's work, and also less well-known, but really emerging in terms of um, their prolific practice in the um, South Asian art scene. So that's a series of double bills uh, at Dance House in Carlton on Thursday, March 11th, Friday, March 12th, and Saturday, March 13th, and also on uh, Saturday the 13th, a, a panel discussion about marginality, power and representation, picking up clearly on some of the themes being explored uh, more broadly by the festival as a whole. Absolutely. I'm very excited about that panel uh, in the sense that we actually have a partnership with Black Dance. Sangam is very much guided by First Nations and Black Dance perspectives, so we're very happy that They are working with us on that panel. We've got some stellar names on the panel that are going to be part of the conversation. And also we have another partnership with an organization in India that um, is also enabling us to have these conversations about how marginality differs depending on where you live and what are the kinds of uh, insights we can bring. So this is free. It's uh, going to be on Zoom, but you do need a ticket to uh, book it. Um, But we're really thinking this is going to be quite exciting. We've got Marilyn Miller, um, we've got uh, Marinda Donnelly, and we've got um, artists from India. It's yeah, it's going to be pretty incredible that conversation. I'm just the sheer fact of the na- some of the, the names that I recognise alone are intriguing. Marilyn M- Miller being the founder of Black Dance, for example, which is now yeah. kind of the peak body for First Nations dance in this country. So, uh, uh, so it, there's going to be some really, I think, electric conversation taking place there. Yes, I'm very excited about that. This is a really important goal for some to actually um, acknowledge that we live and work on unceded uh, Aboriginal land here and in other parts of Australia and what does it mean for migrants and children of migrants and people of colour to work with um, First Nations, you know, structures and respecting sovereignty, what does that mean both politically and in our everyday life as artists? Sangam is running over four weekends and is celebrating uh, the art and artists of South Asia and the the diaspora living here in uh, so-called Australia. Uh, February the 20th, the 27th, March 6th and March 11th to the 13th, as we've heard at Abbotsford Convent, the Drum Theatre, Bunjil Place and Dance House, uh, a broad program featuring more than 100 artists. And for more information about the festival, jump online, Sangam, S-A-N-G-A-M.
sangam.com.au. Priya, it sounds like, obviously, as with any festival, an enormous amount of work has gone into the program, but from everything you've said, an enormous amount of love as well. Absolutely, Richard. That is what we live on right now. The other artistic directors, myself and our incredible team, and all of our supporters, really we are running on uh, adrenaline and love for what we think is really important that Melbourne should see and embrace. And so we're really excited and we hope that um, your listeners will tune in and come and support us. Chookers for the program. It really does look exciting. Thanks, Richard. Hope you'll come too. I will definitely get along to a session or two. Sadly, not the ones at the convent because they've already booked out, but time to start uh, looking at Dance House and beyond. So, yes, yes. that's good. There is, a, there is a panel at the convent that is still um, a, another great conversation led by uh, Veronica Pardo. Uh, I was just going to say that's also going to be a really important conversation. Um, it's not sold out yet. So that's actually going to bring some really great names in as well into that conversation. So look out for that one at the convent. You can still book tickets. That's at 6pm on Saturday. Fantastic. Uh, Dr Priya Srinivasan, thank you so much for joining us here on Triple R. And, uh, yeah, thank you again for kind of putting this program together with your colleagues as well. It sounds significant, important, but also dynamic. Uh, So looking forward to getting amongst it. Thanks so much again. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. One show that I've now had the pleasure of seeing not once but twice is Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which is reopening soon after a significantly extended break. Two of the cast join me on the line, actors Gareth Reeves and Soren Jensen. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Hi, Richard. Thank you for having us. Good morning, good morning. So, Gareth, let's start with you. What's it like returning to roles that you'd already inhabited for for a significant amount of time, but after such a long break? Do actors have muscle memory? Can you literally just step back into a role, remember choreography, remember kind of staging and where you're supposed to be, or has it been a lot of hard work? Yes, that's a, a complicated question, and of course you were going to ask me that, so I've been thinking about it all the way in, and I think I've got a way to frame it for you. Uh, this is how I'm doing it in my head. There's kind of um, four Ps to this, if you will. Uh, the personal political challenge has been sort of... Uh, like I met up with one of my castmates, Lucy, who plays Ginny, uh, before we came back, like the week before she'd had a baby in that time, and we tried to hang out and couldn't. It was stilted, awkward, and almost impossible. And uh, because, you know, we've got a company that are intergenerational, we've got Gen Y, Gen Z, millennials, boomers, the works, and a lot has happened in that break, um, personally and politically, for everyone. Some people have had families, some people have been isolating alone, and we're all trying to find each other again very quickly, and we're all different. And then there's the professional thing, uh, which is turning up on time, knowing when to eat, um, knowing when to sleep, um, get, being on top of your homework and your text and everything. And then what you're kind of referring to, I'm calling my fourth P, poetic, uh, which is the, the artistic side of it, which I'm finding personally wonderful because I'm fulfilling my purpose in life again, but also I've got nothing to prove because I, I'm in this unique position where I've, I've done the show 
for 18 months or so, had an eight-month break, and I don't have to prove to anyone that I can do it anymore. I know I can. Everyone else knows I can. So I'm relaxed, and I'm breathing, and I'm playful and present, and I'm finding, I think, maybe doing better work than I've ever done. There is some muscle memory, but um, uh, often my legs are running places, Mm. and my head doesn't know why. Uh, and then I get there and I pick up a prop and then I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right, of course. So I'm amazed how much my body knows more than my head and I'm trying to trust that. There's a lot of laughing going on, which is good too. Sorry, that's quite long-winded. It's a lot of peas, Mr. Potter. It is. But, yeah, I think you're right, Richard. It's kind of the brain is white noise coming back and the body's just taken off because this show's still in our bones, which is great. In terms of what you were doing during the break, were you reading the script daily, for example, trying to stay mentally match fit for once the show returned? I think it was a really uncertain period and difficult to know how to occupy yourself. I think the cast certainly had a period where we were meeting monthly, fortnightly sometimes to Zoom together and see each other and read through certain acts of the script just to try and keep it fresh. But it also felt that as things extended out, that was difficult for us to do and know. It's like trying to keep a spring coiled. And there was a point where that became exhausting. So I think everyone found their own projects and things to occupy themselves. I turned into some sort of home handyman and painted like 15 doors in my house. Uh, Played a lot of community games with friends and tabletop RPG, which I know you're into and found that storytelling and ideation and creativity in other ways. But I think we were all just waiting for that time when it was a go-ahead to come back and the company was really supportive and then we were back in boot camp for our fitness and then, yeah, it became real and we got primed again and ready again once we uh, had that date where we were bringing the audiences back. As I said, I've had the the privilege of seeing uh, the show both parts twice. So Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, part one and part two, twice. The, f- the, the first time I saw it, I had as much fun watching the audience reaction as I did watching the show itself. Uh, looking at, uh, I guess, not trying to kind of stare at people in the audience, but knowing that there were young people in the audience. I'd, I read these books when I was an adult, but there were people in the audience who f- had perhaps started reading them when they were 10 or 11 years old, had grown up with the books. They're so pivotal to them. So watching their emotional responses to the show uh, the first time was great. Equally watching the show itself. And then the second time, kind of watching those little details in the show, the move, the moments of choreography, the stage magic, the staging, which is all such a, a delight to watch. Uh, Gareth, a, a question for you first, but Soren, I'll get you to answer it as well afterwards. For both of you, you're playing significant characters, not just significant in the play itself, but significant to so many readers of Harry Potter over the years. Is that tough to live up to, their hopes and expectations of what will, what you will bring and embody in those roles? Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, um, I, I, I don't, honestly don't think about it too much. I just, I, I'm very lucky playing Harry in that I have these seven books that are like his diary in a way, you know, so I've got this, I mean, we all do, but I, I've really got his inner thoughts over this extraordinary journey that I, that are my touchstone. I can just go back there and dip in, open any book and open any page before I go on. And it just locates me somewhere um, that I feel very, um, you know, at home now and, and 
safe and supported. Uh, and I love the, um, the thrill of, of hearing what you're talking about from the audience. And, and I think as well, um, introducing people to theatre, you know, the way those books introduced kids to reading, you know, we're introducing a lot of our audience to theatre who might have never been before. And hearing, uh, when we turn 15 suitcases into a train before their eyes, you know, people who haven't been to theatre and don't know about that particular type of magic, that, that's so satisfying. Soren, do you want to pick up on that as well? Yeah, uh, you know, I think um, my kids are at school and I got to read their stories with my eldest over the last couple of years and then I got cast in the show and as Hagrid, it was a beautiful journey for us because we kind of finished the books and then she watched the last of the movies and then on the Wednesday she saw Daddy in theatre for the first time and he was Hagrid and it was the end of this journey and I think that's a big reminder for me of how much we carry into this space of how, you know, I think people love coming to the theatre and discovering theatre, but there's also a history in the world. And as you said, people have grown up with this and hold it very dear. Mm. Um, so to honour that and be ambassadors of that is quite a special experience and to kind of, you know, have it taken away from us and to come back into this rehearsal space and then just have the rug given a good hard pull in the last week. Um, I think we're going to be very grateful for when we get to hit the stage um, for the first time with the audiences again and I've got this lovely moment at the start writers get to come out for just five or ten seconds and live in that space that's just almost being on the springboard of the adventure communally shared and about to begin. Um, something you've said too, I've heard you say Soren, is that, um, uh, and a few people have mentioned about how the script is resonating in whole new ways as well you know, it, it is this modern mythology but it, it also deals with um, you know, with Isolation is a key theme of our play and what happens to people when they are isolated and alone. And Yeah, it's, uh, boy, it, it, there's a whole bunch of uh, political elements in the play too that are singing in a whole new way. It's going to be much like we're a new company now. Um, I think our audiences and the world has changed and uh, I, I'm fascinated to see how this sits, how this drops with people. Yeah, and there's one moment when the boys kind of come back and see Hogwarts anew again and they thought they weren't going to get to see it again mm. and I think for all of us the theatre just kind of lights up and even in tech rehearsals we're just like oh yeah we remember what that means so um, to bring this theatrical event back to Melbourne and back to the stage and back to these audiences who get to come and see it we've got uh, through various circumstances one or two new cast members who are seeing these things even in tech rehearsals for the first time some of the illusions and stuff and as you said it's great to just watch their face when those moments come about not only do we still get goosebumps after seeing it 200 times or something but that first time when the jaw just hits the floor at some of the things that happen in this space is yeah a, a nice reminder of what we're coming back to now certainly uh watching the show there are moments of genuine theatrical magic that are thrilling and frightening uh there's a lot of emotion packed into the show uh, and obviously a lot from audiences as well. I'm still amazed that audiences are, quote, keeping the secret uh, as per the badge that was handed out uh, the, the very first night I saw it. Uh, and uh, also the fact that, uh, Gareth, as you said, that magic of people who will be experiencing theatre for the first time is such a, a key part of it. I love the fact that when the book of the script came out uh, in bookshops, selling out uh, stock the day it was released, for many people, again, that would have been their first experience ever sitting down to read a script, to read a theatrical mm. script. So the show is kind of doing good in that regard. It's also doing good in terms of... Uh, and this resonates uh, and something that I, I interviewed an Irish... Uh, 
artist a couple of days ago who was supposed to be coming over to Adelaide perform, to perform at Adelaide Festival and can't, has entrusted her songs in a show to somebody else to perform, but said she doesn't mind because the sheer fact that theatre is opening in Australia gives her in Ireland and people in the rest of the world hope in terms of knowing that the arts will come back. How conscious are you both of that, that in some ways the, the Melbourne production of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is a, is a bit of a beacon for the theatre industry and your colleagues in the UK, the USA, Canada, uh, and elsewhere around the world? Oh my gosh, we're very, very aware mm-hmm. of it. We, you know, we get these video messages and, um, it, you know, there's so much kind of uh, emotion and, and hopes uh, sort of pinned to the Melbourne production. And, and when we get these video messages from overseas, it, not only is it uh, inspiring and, and humbling, it's also, um, boy, you get a real reminder how, um, how well we're doing here, you know, and how... Um, bad things are in other places how lucky we are and uh oh, and how exciting it is but it's always been my personal mission anytime i see someone uh, at stage door which i guess we won't be doing so much anymore but um you know holding the script i'm like have you read it no great go home and read it and um and then go to the malt house go to red stitch mm. go to the melbourne theater company um you know go to 45 downstairs get out if you liked this um boy are you now uh, ready for a whole world of magic, you know? Um, and I think to the creatives' credit, they, they, John Tiffany always said to us, as big and grand and um, expensive as the show can get sometimes to look at, uh, it is also, there's a real rough magic to it. He wanted kids to be able to go home, grab a blanket and a suitcase and a chair and recreate things they saw yeah. at the theatre. And um, I, I just love that kind of thinking. And, and uh, yeah, I'm really proud to be part of that. Yeah, and I think um, one thing we became really conscious of, well, I, uh, for me, in isolation and, and disconnection and everything through a screen was how much this theatre space is, I don't know how to describe it, our church, our sanctuary, our communal storytelling around the fire. It's where everyone gets to come and share in a story and an experience and have people around you gasping and laughing and you get to feel connected with a whole space of people and that's something that you don't get anywhere else. And, you know, the fact that we have the privilege of everyone's worked so hard to bring back arts and music and theatre and um, all the rest is such a privilege. I think the Hamburg production were a week off their opening night uh, when they got shut down in Germany and they haven't yet got to come back or anywhere else in the world so we're feeling very, very privileged about what we get to come back and share and I hope everyone will come back and jump in and buy tickets uh, as soon as possible to come back and share it. Yeah, we're we're really blessed as well that a lot of our audience have really stuck with us too. Mm. And it's, um, you know, because people have had their show dates postponed three times. Um, I know personally some of them. And, uh, you know, but they're like, no, no, we're holding on to those tickets and we're damn well coming, you know. My kids have been looking forward to this or, you know, grandma's bringing them now, whatever. And uh, I can't wait to give it to them, you know. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with actors Gareth Reeves and Soren Jensen who are playing Harry and Hagrid, uh, respectively, in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which is reopening at the Princess Theatre in Spring Street, Melbourne, with bookings currently uh, open through until August. I suspect it's going to be playing for quite a while longer than that. Um, When I was planning for this interview over uh, about a year ago, one of my questions to you both was going to be, how do you stay fresh in a role for so long that you've played for, for months? 
months and months and months on end. Um, that's clearly not a particularly pertinent question these days, but I'm still curious to know how you, how you and the rest of the cast keep the magic when you've been playing these characters for, Gareth, what was it you said, 16 months or something? Yeah, that was a really pertinent question uh, a while ago. Um, and my memories of it are, and I've been reminded, is look, it's partly the um, the, the calibre of, for me, the calibre of performers that I'm working with. You know, every time I walk into Hermione's office with Paula Arundel, um, you know, those eyes are sparkling at me and I don't really quite know what I'm going to get. And that's just great. You know, there's a very clear, uh, definite framework that we are working within, but the, the actors that we've got and... Um, you know, we've got some new cast members who only did seven shows before we locked down, and, uh, you know, we barely got to start playing with them. And so over the last, like, week or so, uh, it's been great to, you know, figure those guys out again, and, uh, you know, and, and then we're going to be moving into some new Year 3 cast members in a few months' time. So keeping it fresh is not going to be uh, a big concern, I don't think, this year. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's an element of um, just before the curtain goes up, I, I go and stand like as close as I can to the audiences behind the curtain and you just feel this buzz and the electricity of them having waited sometimes months, a year, especially coming back this time, to have this moment. This is their night. And uh, it's pretty easy just to kind of shut your eyes and tap into that a little bit and um, realise you're serving their experience for the first time and it's pretty easy to get on that horse and ride after that. The communal magic of theatre is so significant and so important, that shared uh, moment of leaning in together, feeling our hearts beat as one at a moment. I'm so glad new audiences will get to experience that when Harry Potter and the Cursed Child reopens on stages. Just before I let you go, gentlemen, if we speak about communal experiences and community, the author of Harry Potter has hurt sections of the community with... Uh, comments uh, considered transphobic on Twitter and elsewhere. Do you feel she's tainted the, uh, the, the reputation of Harry Potter? Do you struggle with uh, the, the characters that you're playing knowing who created them? Yeah, interesting. That was an interesting time. I remember that quite strongly, you know. And uh, look, what I feel is that um, Harry Potter, the character and the story and the mythology of it, for me, uh, lives beyond <laughs> J.K. Rowling now you know her twitter and online um personality and opinions are, are very much hers and um yeah i, I just sort of don't feel a, a kind of connection with that um personally speaking incredibly sympathetic to, to anyone that felt hurt by those comments and um you know we certainly rallied around anyone uh, across the world and the companies that that did feel kind of hurt and, and looked for ways to kind of support them but um do i feel that uh, our story our production and harry potter is tainted by that no i i honestly feel i've never met her i um you know, I have I have great respect for this incredible thing that she's created, but I feel like it lives on its own beyond mm. J.K. Rowling's so Twitter account. To be honest, yeah. Well, how do you feel, Scott? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough to de to define, and certainly not something that I personally can support. Um, but we've got such amazing members of our cast and our crew who are non-binary, transgender, and. Uh, it, it was conflicting for them, um, but our uh, production exists in its own entity with our own family and community here, and hopefully they know they have nothing but support from us. 
Um, but yeah, it's a very difficult thing to process. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child uh, is, I have to say, uh, a pretty magical show, having seen it myself. It's on at the Princess Theatre, 163 Spring Street, Melbourne. Uh, if you want to book tickets, uh, jump online, www.harrypottertheplay.com. Uh, performances resuming, I believe, on the 25th of February. Soren. Next Thursday, it's going to be a big week. Yes, yep. the goosebumps just confirmed that is correct. Thank you. But, you know, we've got some of the best crew in the world here and, and people backstage and cast on stage, so we'll be ready and we can't wait to have everybody back. I uh, think it will be pretty magic when it returns. So, uh, Gareth and Soren, thank you both for chatting to us today. Uh, and, uh, Gareth, I think you said you've got some kind of intense cardio activity in about uh, eight minutes' time, so i better let you go yeah, and prepare. We're, we're literally sitting here in our shorts and sneakers uh, in, a, in an office uh, above it. I can hear the music starting. Thank you. <laughs> it's been a pleasure chatting to you both. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 